The following is a podcast with Sachin. Sachin is an investor in private and public markets. He's an investor in SpaceX. He's an investor in Palantir. He's an early investor in the psychedelic scene. There's so much knowledge within this podcast. I highly recommend you watch till the end. We're available on Spotify and on YouTube. Check us out for more. Thank you so much. And I highly recommend you watch the rest of this podcast. Okay, hello. Welcome back to Dantons. I'm Christian, I'm the founder of Dantons, a media company focused on innovation within public markets. I'm joined here by a very special guest, Sachin. Um, I'm delighted to have him on the podcast. He has amazing work related to Palantir. He's a private investor in SpaceX and is very interesting, at least has interest within the psychedelic scene, which I also have been following for some time. So Sachin, thank you so much for having for, for coming on and, and, and please introduce yourself. Where can everyone find you? It's great to have you on the show. So it's my it's my pleasure and it's uh, thanks for being the part of Palantir community. I think it, you have uh, brought out some really nice aspect of the of the company. Really appreciate for all the content you make. Uh, for me, it's simple, man. I mean, uh, I I I have my own boutique strategy consulting. I'm a advisor with the tier one consulting firms. Uh, also an advisor with the ESG and the PE fund in Singapore. I have a couple of more clients in business education. Recently started a project with a large MNC in terms of their data strategy. So that's pretty much what I do. My background prior to this, I was nearly three years in BCG. And before that, I was nearly 14 years in Schlumberger, overall 18 years in energy now. My last position in Schlumberger, I joined them briefly and it was, uh, I was their marketing industrial strategy lead for their data AI and insight. So, so my background is more operations and energy and I came from hardcore mathematics physics background, but eventually like uh, as everyone grows, I moved into project management and then slowly into uh, data and AI now. So that's pretty much what I do. Yeah, I think it's very interesting. And, and likewise, I mean, your, your background obviously gives us so much value. Um, just from the community's perspective and, and that insight you have, um, at least from, from my perspective, is, is very valuable. So just give me um, an overview. I think it's fair to say your investments in SpaceX, in Palantir, what you work on is all centered on what I would call innovation. Can you explain to me why um, why is innovation so important to what you do? And, and what do you think innovation can lead to in the future? Because there's so many pessimists in today's society that I that I see at least. Um, and this is why I, I do respect a woman like Kathy Wood, because she is focused solely on innovation. And I think it's a very noble goal. So just give me an overview of, of why innovation. You could easily invest, um, you know, into, into an index fund and get 5%, 10% a year. But you're taking perhaps more of a risk. Is there something special about innovation that, that you enjoy? So, um, so I did index investing for a long time, but uh, over the time I realized that, see, every investor is different. So when I was doing index investing, index investing is, is like a passive investing. You mm. do it, you, you do it monthly and you kind of forget about it. That's pretty much the theme. You do it for all of your career, you retire well, and when you are 60, 65, 70, whenever. So that's pretty much, but what was happening was I was investing a lot of time spending on company, understanding businesses. Uh, why one company succeed over other. I also have made uh, several bad investments over the time as well. So I was also trying to figure out like what works. What I figured it out that my risk appetite is different than a lot of people. I'm not saying it's good or bad, it's just different. So it's also part of like the kind of work I did uh, in past. 
uh, I'm pretty comfortable even if I'm like a high six figure and seven figure down for whatever day. I mean, I can sleep, still sleep like, okay. I mean, I, so I realized that I can handle risk in a very different way. And uh, then there was also a point that I really get obsessed about that why certain company succeed so much and why everyone misses about it. Like, I think it's a pursuit a lot of people do in their career. Yeah. So same I did. During that time, uh, the question was like, everybody finds their answer. So I also managed to find some answers for me. And the question was, yeah, I mean, you found the answer, but at the end of the day, what do you do about it? Mm. So this is where I decided to, to take action about it. And I started investing and it kind of worked for me. I mean, when I started doing it that time, my idea was like, can I really retire at 45? And uh, technically I'm retired. I mean, I do what I like now. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I pretty much work on my own time. If I feel like making a video in a day, I make video. If I feel like writing a blog or a blog, if I feel like working on a project, I work. Uh, nowadays, I'm trying to learn new things to see if I can do some startup. So that's pretty much what my life is. It's awesome. Sounds great. Um, just, I've been hearing lots of speculation, obviously, many pessimists within the market are, are kind of shouting this narrative um, in terms of similarities between the dot-com bubble and now. And I th I, I'm a very passionate investor in innovation and similar to you, I do take much more risks. Um, and I've made some terrible investing decisions when I was younger. I started investing when I was incredibly young under my mom's name. And I mean, you could, there was terrible investment decisions that were made. I was trading penny stocks, etc. So can you um, give me perhaps a breakdown of, of why there is or isn't similarities between the dot-com crash in which everyone thought innovation was going to be so key and today's innovation scene. Um, because Kathy Woods has, has been very vocal and, and many commentators have been very vocal about this similarity perhaps. So, uh, so there are a few reasons I don't think it's similar to, to dot-com. Okay. I mean, I do see there was a bubble was created with all the liquidity that was injected and the kind of mania that we saw uh, in terms of stocks, especially from November 2020 till February. But see, when, if you see, in order to understand the, the dot-com bubble, you need to understand like how industry emerged from 94 to 99. I mean, internet has just come in. Okay, the world, there was a very selected portion on the world that has internet that time. But the way dot-com bubble, I mean, the company's valuation gone up, it expected a certain kind of a rise, the, the acceptance of internet, uh, revenues. But, and then I'll, the idea was, and nobody knew actually, a lot of people think that, okay, if you, as long as you open uh, a website, you are part of dot-com economy. Yeah. Okay. I mean, like people even who are building, like uh, all the big names who were running the, uh, running the search engines, the Yahoo, the Lycos, the Alta Vista, the Excite. Pretty much what happened very early that, uh, yeah, it was all over the place. I mean, there was a buzz. People realized there is a value in it, but they were not real revenues in the company, which mm. is very different from now. Also, if you see that the maturity in terms of uh, um, the venture capital, the, the ecosystem, now you have the cloud infrastructure, you can literally drop down your CapEx like anything now. Yep. You can convert a lot of CapEx to OPEX. These things never existed that time. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And, and you know, nowadays, if you see the, the, this computer programming workforce, it's a mature workforce. It's a community. I mean, those, that time majority of it was still pretty much like hobbyist or pe people. I mean, 
in silicon valley it could have been mature but a lot of cities there was not a single job in computers those days i think that's really interesting and, and i agree i've come to that conclusion too um and i think it's very logical to to, to compare them blindly the the, t- the two events just drawing on a previous point you stated about investing in risk um before we get into the psychedelic scene which i'm i've been following so, for some time especially um atai which i think is a really interesting company i'm i i envision investing similar to like a massive game of chess and it's almost like uh, the the different way you think can therefore lead you to a better outcome um, and I mean, I, that's kind of my analogy that I would use. So just on the topic of taking risk and investing in um, often speculative and disruptive companies, one area uh, I've heard you speak about in the past, and I'm not sure if you're invested, but, but you at least have some interest in this area, is the psychedelic scene. Can you give me an insight into um, the issues around mental health and where you see that going in the next five years? Because I understand there's some points we're going to get you to, get to momentarily, including legislation issues around the war on drugs, um, the societal consensus and how that can be really problematic for success of these companies. Can you just give me firstly a brief overview of, of the, the way you see the psychedelic scene moving forward? Yeah, so first and foremost, full disclosure, I mean, I have been a psychedelic investor. I have been invested in a type force. I mean, I had to, I had to liquidate my position forcefully for now because uh, my PE company was not able to transfer it uh to my equity account okay. okay so there was like some discussion going on between so what they have done now they have liquidated the position they'll send me the cash and then i'll buy it again sure. in a way it works for me because uh the carried interest position the the the, the position the point at which i paid the carried interest that was like 7.99 dollar and the stock has fallen like five but they will still cash me in 7.9 okay. so I mean, it's a bit of arbitrage for me. But the question is, why did I invest in psychedelics? I mean, I live in Southeast Asia. I mean, Southeast Asia even doesn't have any kind of drugs or anything. I mean, the, the rules are very strong. Okay. Um, see, I was doing some research in mental health uh, for investment purpose in August 2020. Mm. Okay. And a lot of papers I came across that time had... Uh, they discussed about the, the influence of psychedelics. Okay, I mean, I knew about psychedelics in terms of people use it for recreation and shaman rituals and all that. But this was first time I was seeing that so much, so much research about psychedelics in terms of mental health. So I started, I mean, there is a maps and then there is other communities that started reading that. So I started realizing that over the time, like what happened, like when the war on drugs started in 70s, Okay, I mean, psychedelics and marijuana, I mean, uh, they were treated in the same categories as some of the hardcore drugs. Okay, I mean, it was also, it was the kind of like what we call like 60s hippie uh, times and all yeah. that. So there, there were there were also a lot of reasons that, that it happened. Okay, but uh, it was also true that some of these uh, things have medicinal properties. The question was that it was made taboo mm. in the society to discuss Okay. I mean, I came from India and at least in my hometown, I mean, uh, uh, during those days, I mean, the, the marijuana was still like quasi legal kind of like when you will find people having it, I mean, liquor was banned. Uh, but if you're caught with liquor or marijuana, then you will be charged for liquor, not for marijuana. <laughs> That's pretty much like the kind. So like I, I never considered it that taboo as I, in other societies and countries it is considered. 
okay so so i also knew that there is a there is a medicinal part then there was i was also following the opioid crisis in 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 us and here 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 i this is how i think see big pharma will not let go the revenues of opioid crisis so it's it's a big chunk i mean now everybody knows that they really messed it up in all all of this crisis okay and the issue it has created in terms of depression and all those mental health that is different whatever issues we we discuss in us in terms of ptsd in veterans then the covid thing happened okay by that time it was also clear that covid will leave a uh, lot of scratches on the mental health as well so i came up with an idea i mean not an idea but of opinion that uh, legislator legislative bodies are getting slowly more acceptable about marijuana mm-hmm. that means that pixie dust will go over uh, magic mushrooms also up to certain extent and if it goes to magic mushroom then it goes to magic mushrooms medical research also okay and if it goes to that part it becomes quite clear that a lot of issues that uh, opioid crisis has created can actually be handled using psychedelics and i was seeing like people who are speaking about it i think when i saw like christian engenmar speaking about it when i saw uh, peter thiel invested in atai i think that caught my attention yeah okay so yeah i mean lot of regulatory uh, framework has to come around it but uh, it is going to happen i think that's that's how i think especially in the in the western world i think it's incredible some of the the results and it was it was interesting when i first looked into this industry um that MDMA was used for couples therapy back in the 80s. Um and yeah. obviously it's been demonized since then. My my main concerns when investing within this industry is is the potential high costs that are attributed with using psychedelics for therapy. Um, I I may be wrong in saying this or may not be exactly specific, but I believe you do need um a mentor or someone who's with you guiding you through those trips. Um therefore yep. it can lead to higher costs in terms of um therapy etc. How is one expected to to bring those costs down especially in consideration of the fact that with psychedelics often you have to do multiple trips or multiple takes of the psychedelic in order to actually see results is that a concern that you just think is going to eventually come down with some sort of innovation no it's not a concern for me i'll explain you why okay uh, see if you see the medical cost in europe versus us it's already very different mm-hmm. okay i mean if you see that how much uh, how much people were spending on opioids in us uh and like i said i mean big pharma would never like uh, their revenues go down so they will eventually figure out i mean in us the the medical cost is is exorbitant i mean it's it's high beyond yeah. uh, i mean the regular reasoning so us is a different case from that point of view. okay okay so it could possible it is it is possible that the cost remains high in us and still Uh, people get prescribed by it and eventually what will happen is that uh, it will be covered in insurance and yeah i mean like insurance and big pharma yep. i mean they kind of work together so th- that is something what could happen in in the us land in uh, terms of uh, like what is in happens in if you look in terms of canada in terms of rest of the western i think that there the cost has to come down okay and now now one of the thing is like if you are following psychedelics and medical space you know that the concept of microdose yes okay and you also uh, have seen there is some recent research on the synthetic chemicals or synthetic psychedelics as well mm-hmm. okay so 
from that part i think that, that that's where the innovation part will come if once we get we still haven't got like big pharma at least in public space involved that much in psychedelics i think that will be the big crack also i mean if you follow like atai closely i mean people consider atai as a psychedelic company but atai is in my opinion is not a psychedelic company if you read their filings Atai has equity in almost like 19 20 companies including Dobie and where Palantir is also an investor. Atai is an ecosystem company. Okay. Where they are helping a lot of companies to leverage each other research and uh, it is something which was which was very critical. When I invested in in Atai that time I realized that Atai had a significant portion in CMPS CMPS went public and CMPS was expected to go quite high that time. So I realized that if that bet works out uh my i mean the atai valuation today is pretty much what's their stake in cmps everything atai is doing in the 19 company is pretty much free on top of that and that's pretty much what the 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 status as of today so again no financial advice but that made me realize that atai is undervalued that time mm. just on the front of few questions in relation to this topic um because i'm really interested in it and i think it's like a, a very noble area to invest money especially considering that the potential um use cases in terms of mental health some of the statistics are amazing like for PTSD i think MDMA has an 80% success rate um over two or three sessions it's exceptional just on the the final few questions i have for this topic legislation i'm always very cautious when when a company has to go through vast legislation changes in order to perhaps uh, achieve a goal and i mean we're even seeing this with tesla now even though tesla's ai capabilities are so successful um and we know they are far better than ford than neo than any of these other companies is that a concern when investing in the perhaps this scene um or just more more generally when you when you're investing in a company in which is so reliant on legislation changes we know that governments are so slow when it comes to innovation and changes um innately and that's across every single government in the world so is this a concern that legislation will just move so slowly that it just ruins the investment idea I think it's not a concern given the timeline of investment. So again, I mean, this is where strategic thinking is helpful. Okay. Okay. You see a point A, and you try to see how it will go from point A to point B. Like if I go back in, like for example, when I was investing in SpaceX, I mean, I invested in SpaceX because I felt SpaceX was the safest investment possible that time. Mm. Because I I was seeing that they they just hinted about the Starlink. I already had a strong view upon the ISP market and how it can be disrupted. Um, then I was also looking the the crew program, which was not commercialized at that particular time. I mean, the, we already had the reusable uh, launcher. So, I mean, I had enough evidence that there is a technical and operational and capital excellence signatures in the SpaceX. Okay, from that point onward, I mean, people can say okay whether the crew program will be. will be approved whether starlink happens or not but from that point i get the idea that technology will eventually push regulation okay uh, it will happen over the time okay because now we live in a consumerism kind of a world where people want more access yeah. to the material so same thing in 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 case of when i see like the psychedelics so if you see what is happening in marijuana space that is giving you a very good idea what will happen in psychedelic space so i already seen i don't see a world where marijuana is legalized and psychedelics are not even for medicinal purpose okay that's my position so 
regulatory will it take time yes it will take some time but uh, i don't see uh, i mean i don't see any major roadblocks in that that people have been speaking uh, quite positive about it okay i mean one point when ilan was spoke up spoke about it so there is there is a momentum that is building and so the question for you is always as an investor is that when are you comfortable with that momentum okay when i think in terms of a strategic way i realize okay this is a point a and this is how things are likely to evolve okay so i i went in okay somebody will say okay i want to wait for the regulation regulatory approvals yeah i mean every investor is different sure i think that's really interesting and something i was actually was going to ask you upon the fact that the cannabis industry is an indicator a leading indicator of where psychedelics will go at least that's the view that i believe is is fairly strong um and it's interesting also the the crypto laws that have been passed or at least discussed in congress and and within the government scene recently um whether they actually understand what bitcoin is is another question but but the 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 idea that um that it's being discussed now and in a few years ago that was very abstract and radical to even assume my my next question is in relation to private investing overall before we get to palantir and spacex which are other topics i'd like to speak about when investing in in these companies i've been asking my guests recently whether you have to be a specialist in set industries to invest because at least from my perspective when investing in companies like palantir i th- i feel like i'm often missing something because i haven't got that innate industry experience so do you uphold the view too that perhaps if you're investing within these psychedelics um within the data scene within electronic cars you must be a specialist in that scene in some way and if so or, or or if not then how do you learn online or perhaps what what methods do you use to understand in depth do you just read online research do you just listen to podcasts what's your strategy so uh so there are a lot of companies i invest i'm not an expert like psychedelics was an idea i wasn't i mean i'm not an expert i invested in peptidologics for a large position i'm not an expert in peptides okay okay i mean spacex yeah i mean i i had some idea of the technology what spacex is rocket science so definitely i'm not an expert in that nowadays i'm evaluating an opportunity for an hollywood studio uh, i mean not an expert in hollywood movies Yeah. Okay, but you know what i started realizing few last couple of months back i evaluated uh, the opportunity to invest in a very large media house business media house i'm definitely not an expert in that okay and you know this is how i used to think that you need to be an expert in this thing that areas i'm expert i lost money i mean expert in oil and gas i have lost a lot of money in oil and gas yeah so how to codify it i mean so how do i look at it okay let me try to explain my process and because nowadays i have to coach people also in my fund like uh i mean i have to screen like two three companies on a daily basis like how we are going to look into it okay uh, i try to look for uh, very simple signs i mean like for example i want to understand that what is the cash in cash out model like where the cash is being invested and how the cash is coming back i mean if you try to make some very simple mind maps you can get pretty reasonable idea about it okay then you also try to have built some view in terms of like like the capital deployment i mean do you see any signs of excellence in that you can build all kind of cash flow models we also build that but that doesn't help uh, to me what is more important is to understand the company strategy mm. okay what they are trying to do how they are differentiated from each and every player in their arena uh, 
I mean, I often use ERRC frameworks. I, mean, I find them very helpful. I try to go look all the all the executives, what they have said in past, what are their news, are they consistent over the years? I try to go and look in LinkedIn's like who are the people working for this company? What is their background? I mean, are they come from really credible backgrounds and companies or they look shady? Okay. <laughs> I try to look like what kind of jobs they are posting because that gives me an idea like what kind of position sometimes company is. Okay. And uh, like, for example, recently I was looking for this company, I think, and uh, there was a bit of stagnation, but then I saw recently that they are, they are actually hiring a lot of accountant sales representative. So I get an idea that there was some bottleneck, which kind of result and they are looking to grow. So these are like small, small hints to yeah. start picking up. Then there are, you also have to be very clear on the view on the future as well. Like what is your version of future? What are the different trends you are looking around you? Okay. And uh, there are a lot of similarities. Like for example, I was looking for this movie studio and I had no clue, like how to value, I mean, how do you value even a creative team? I mean, yeah. that's the question I had because, uh, and then I was looking, I wanted to understand, they gave me some revenue. I wanted to understand like how your year one revenues, where exactly it is coming from. Okay. I, I looked on the team, like which uh, movies you have done. These guys have like plenty of uh, good movies that they make. So I said, okay. Uh, let me take your first year revenue and let me take your second year revenue and let me say that you get no revenue growth after second year just for the timing i take that okay and i take your five years revenue and because i'm not comfortable i don't know about the industry let me discount it by 50 percent hmm. and whatever revenue is remaining i use a discount rate of 40 percent for irr i get to some valuation okay it, it is our valuation okay it is not devaluation, but it is evaluation. Then I look at that number and I see, okay, if that number makes sense to me, because then I'll start looking further into it. Okay. So sometimes, so there is no right way of doing things. Okay. Like uh, there is not like that you should do 15%, 20% because every investor is different. I don't, I'm looking for outsized returns. People can say a oh, 40% discount rate is quite extreme. Yeah, but I'm not investing for 10, 15%. My idea is like, if you get a company that has more than two X return probability, according to you, even if things go wrong, you can still break even. Okay. And this is why I don't invest a lot of pre series. A. I mean, I want to have like at least basic understanding and uh, evidence that the business model is somewhat proven. Okay. There is a fraction. So it's not like this, that I'm not taking, I'm taking a different kind of risk. Okay. I mean, even like some of people who are very close to me, they come to me like for angel investment, seed investment. I simply say, no, I said, I have done it. I have lost money. This is not my thing. Hmm. Okay. But I'm good at identifying companies from series A, B, C. I mean, this is where I pick companies and until now I haven't burnt my hand. I mean, people have seen me and based on my performance, a couple of people approach me that they want me to be advisor of their fund. Okay. Uh, I had long discussions with these guys before I joined them, uh, shared like, okay, why don't you see how my thesis work? Does that make sense to you? It may not be conventional way of doing it. I have worked, I mean, I have reviewed almost 40 companies with, with these people now. So they have a very good idea, like how I work. Uh, so yeah, I mean, it's, you need to start from somewhere. Yeah. I mean, being expert doesn't help. Being expert actually can be blindsided at time. Yeah. Okay. 
I mean, I had an MBA. I mean, for long, I thought like Tesla was thirty-four billion. I was like, yeah, it's a kind of an overvalued company. <laughs> okay, so being being expert can blind you. Looking some of the very generic facts also. So, uh, I mean, I, I'm not an expert in digital. I mean, over that time, I knew industry. I was good in technology. I was good in picking softwares. Okay, that's pretty much what I managed to mold into when the digital transformation started in energy. I wanted to understand, okay, what is happening here, guys? Okay, well, who are these companies? Like, what they are trying to build up there? And this is how I ended up in digital implementation. I picked up things over the time. Okay, nowadays, I mean, I can get project completely on my own from very large companies sometimes. So, and I still come up from from the viewpoint which I have. Okay, so yeah, you you figure it out. I mean, reading helps, uh, especially the mental part. I mean, I read a lot of investing book. One of my favorite investing book for all time is is Market Wizard series. I really love that series. Okay, and I mean, people read that series for like to learn trading. And I I I, I mean, I I don't think it's the right book to learn trading, but that's a very good book to learn uh, the investing mindset. Yeah. Okay, so I'm a big fan of that. I mean, I read a lot of books, um, but I think that is the one that made the biggest impression on me. Yeah, it was interesting when I was reading your your tweet on the Hollywood studio, and I was theorizing over how you would even value or even start to value someone like that. And and I did I did think I mean it would be incredibly hard to do a DCF in the traditional methods that we. No, but... it's and you know this is like a new studio. I mean, this is like they yeah. came from a. Good. I mean, everybody comes from a strong studio background, uh, but they are not like they haven't made their movie yet. Okay. So I mean, like, who who is investing in them? Uh, what are the network effects in that? Okay. Uh, there are a lot of things you. I mean, I have like a list of like two hundred questions I go through every time I go through an investment. I find some more questions and I add it to that list. Okay, that's really interesting. And just on that that point that you mentioned about being an expert in the, in the scene. This is what another guest told me, um, Antonio, very, very, very good um, podcast we had. And he told me that often being an expert is very blinding. And you, you, yeah. you view it from a different way when you're not an expert in the scene. You ask different questions and view it from a completely different way, which is often actually beneficial, at least in his view. I think it's interesting, um, your, your private investing, most definitely. Can you explain to me about the disconnect within private and public markets when it comes to innovation? Um, why is this happening? And Kathy Wood has been a proponent after reading some of her her, her tweets um, and, and content stating that the disconnect and that the opportunity is huge. She's never seen, seen anything like it. Why is there a disconnect between innovation within public markets and private markets? Do you have any insight into that? Oh, I don't know whether my insights are right or wrong. Okay. Mm, but I mean, like in terms of if you see that innovation investing in tech or disruption investing in tech, it's pretty mature now. Okay, I mean, people have seen the rise of Apple and Google and Facebook. So people understand like the, the kind of returns you can get from digital economy is uh, are serious. Okay, now uh, the companies stay private because they can raise a lot of money. So like for example, Stripe was is already 100 plus billion, but it's still private. Mm. Okay, now this is what is very different from now versus uh, 15 years back. Like for example, I remember like when Google went uh, public, I said, oh, this, this company is so big, how big it can go. 
I mean, when I think about my statement now, I look pretty stupid. <laughs> okay. And so that is the thing. I mean, private investing is kind of privilege in a way because the access is restricted. The big money chases it. And then, I mean, the investment banks can really kind of balloon it up before the IPO happens. Okay. So, and, and you know, I mean, like if their company is good, like for example, a SpaceX, I mean, so if you see Kathy Wood, Kathy Wood has a theme of innovation, but she cannot access the most innovative company of the world because they are in the private market and companies are staying private for longer. Okay. And the value creation in private is far more than like, for example, if the SpaceX comes to market at a valuation of 300 billion, I mean, how high it will go in mm, 10 years, yeah. 1 trillion, that is 3x. But if you entered in the SpaceX as 36 billion and it goes to 300, even after like all the dilution and your fees, you still make like 5x, 6x on that. So that is something which is very different, but then it comes with, I mean, it's, it, you can lose money fast also because these companies are not public. So you don't know yeah. a lot of things about it. Like you saw what happened with the companies like WeWork and Theranos. Okay, yeah. That's a risk uh, uh, that comes with it. Uh, then there is a liquidity issue. I mean, Palantir faced it for a long time since they are 2015 to 2020. There was, I mean, they, the liquidity was a, was a problem in Palantir. Okay. And uh, so, yeah, but uh, I still find, in my view, I find pal public investing safer, sorry, private investing safer than public investing. That's really interesting. Um, That's why most of my portfolio is in private. That's really interesting. Final question on this topic. Um, and, I, and I think that was lots of value that you gave there because not many people did, but I mean, I've spoken to on, on the podcast have been have access to private markets. Can you explain to everyone, final question on this topic, how did you first get involved within investing within private markets, if you don't mind me asking? And is this an area in which um, many people can get involved in or is it more of an exclusive um, club almost that, that perhaps is much harder to get involved in? So it's not exclusive, but it's limited. Okay. Uh, so how did I get invested in? I mean, I was, I kept asking people for years, man, I mean, how to do private investing. And I mean, and especially, I mean, you need, I mean, I don't come from us and, uh, uh, you, I mean, Asia is much conservative from that size. Like yeah. when I got into private markets, I didn't know anyone in my circle who was in private markets. So I was reaching people within my network. I think in my case, uh, there was like one point I was like seriously obsessed finding investment for <laughs> SpaceX. I mean, like I was literally asking everyone. Then I met one of my uh, college alumni on one of the message board and he was working for a Swiss PE company. And he said, yes, we have some allocation, but you have to act fast. And the ticket sizes was also quite large. I mean, so I had to make up my mind first. And the question was like, I mean, if you have done the work, you have trusted yourself, I think then you need to act. So I think that was the trigger point for me. I was able to make that decision that time to act it. I mean, people can say all, all kinds of questions like, okay, do you really trust them? So I did whatever DDI could have done, but still there was a risk. So I invested with them. Okay. Over the time, my confidence has grown in, in them. So that's pretty much, but this is how I, once you, I started, then it changes because now I met this guy and then he introduced me to other play people. Sometimes he said, okay, that these people want to invest in this company. 
they want to understand i mean they have some concern would you be okay talking to them i said fine i can talk to them i can share what i have i can listen what they have so then slowly it started going up then some of my friends learned about it what i'm doing then they said they also want to do this yeah uh, then yeah i mean uh, then they started uh, so yeah i mean this is how like slowly then i built a group of some of my friends and then they brought another people in so over the time like uh, now i have a quite a sizable group i mean and, uh, we do a lot of time i mean uh, now what happens like 80 to 90% of this group actually decides on an investment based on what one or two people are doing they don't do any study <laughs> really yeah this is how this is what happens man this is what you need to understand that people don't realize it in the world of elites and rich 80 to 90% people simply make money by copying others but they are very smart in order to understand whom to copy that's the only skill they have wow okay but it's a very legit skill i mean i often underestimated it but i see wow that's really interesting and um thanks for giving the overview of, of of the private markets um i'm sure we could talk about this for much longer but considering we're short of time and only have about half an hour left with you let's talk about palantir um and similar to you i think sometimes i can get fairly obsessive with opportunities or things that I see and like I lay in bed sometimes and just randomly thoughts come up about Palantir or, or some investment opportunity I was thinking about this yesterday um, and I don't think it's really been covered much and I've tried my best to kind of think of different ideas that haven't been touched upon in previous podcasts and this is in relation to an inherent weakness of Palantir's business model um, in consideration of the fact that Palantir is not a data broker it's not a data aggreg aggregator Palantir does not collect or sell personal data, and they don't use um, personal data to train AI models or machine learning models. Is this a potential weakness in their long-term competitive moats of the organization? Um, and what I mean by this is when you have organizations such as Google, which have been collecting personal data for, for such a long time, if they were to compete head-on with Palantir, they have an advantage because they have so much more access to this personal data. And whilst it may be unethical in business, does that really matter? So I guess my question is, is this an inherent weakness, the fact that Palantir do, does not collect data personally and train that against their models and use it to, to garner competitive moats, whereas an organization like Google could come in and easily um, perhaps uh, gain a larger market share than one would, be, one would expect through um, this perhaps unethical model? So, uh, see, the Google model has its advantage because... First, the biggest advantage they have is that they actually get to deal with a large amount of data. So they, this kind of problems they deal with is, I mean, it's a real big data problem. So they can sharpen their teeth in that. The reason they sell the data or insights from it, because there is no other way to make a use of the data they collect. Okay. So they're, whatever we call like data mining, data harnessing, they do it because that's the only way they can monetize it. Okay. Now that is where organizations are different. Like for example, when I started working in Schlumberger, uh, those days we used to have something called like Google inside Schlumberger. That was a Google B2B solution for Schlumberger. And Schlumberger all data. And you know, those days Schlumberger has, I mean, I believe still has very large internal database, extremely big. Okay. Uh, during my 15 years, in Shlambaja, I probably never even explored 1% of that. So Google had this kind of uh, insights those days, which they were using. But 
given they do data harnessing i mean like people struggle like enterprise struggle with google at times i mean i know in oil and gas google had a position at some point they decided that they will not give their ai for fossil fuel companies so a lot of companies got stuck that means they went with google they developed their products and then google say by the way i cannot give all of my expertise to you so companies felt cheated with google okay so there is a there is a so that is one of the problem i mean people often call about it that palantir has an issue like an image issue uh with the b2b trust me google has an image issue with b2b <laughs> also okay i mean media doesn't talk about it but uh, it is true yeah okay uh that is one part the second part is like they are not harnessing data but because they work with like um, organizations like cia and the kind of so at the end of the day they get access to large data so they manage to cut their teeth in really different kind of problems okay and another thing is that they have a position in terms of like data privacy which is i mean it's a two different world the way google see the future the way palantir see the future if the palantir version of future is true that means they have an inherent advantage if google version is true then google has an inherent advantage i think the biggest risk which palantir has with google is palantir has been very vocal about practices google has so google and palantir will go head to head against each other and google is a juggernaut they have cash they have positions they have political influence it's not an easy company to fight with so that is the disadvantage palantir has against them so it at the end of the day it will truly come up on the business model the go to market strategy and the philosophy of the company along with the product is that can they really succeed in that they have shown good signs but that risk is always there i was previously of the view that because google has worked with china because google has this unethical kind of image that they wouldn't be able to compete with palantir and i and i since have dropped that view and i don't think it's valid um i i agree with you that one eventually um there will be a head on head competition which is why i'm so focused on palantir garnering these huge competitive moats for 5 10 years years time through stock based compensation through the spacs etc just a few points i wanted to mention there um firstly most palantir doesn't own the data um they do learn from the processes in which the data yeah. is related and that's incredibly important especially in the context of the recent um governmental talk with sachin uh, sorry with sankar not sachin with sankar he stated how um palantir in the government scene is cooperative in comparison to competitive and therefore palantir learns on such a vast scale within the government which leads me to believe that once again huge competitive moats will be created and also interestingly i've i'm i'm thinking about this today i'm skeptical on the future of data ownership and i'm interested in that scene um whether organizations in the future will be able to own just from an ethical point of view will be able to own an individual's data and and i think perhaps a more a more likely scenario is the case in in which palantir is following in which they don't own the data however the company does learn from the processes in which the data is interlinked therefore leading to competitive edges for the organization so that's just a topic that i was um th- theorizing about will data be able to be collected by a company uh, will personal data be able to to be collected by a company in the future and in my opinion I'm I'm on the fence I uh, haven't really decided but it's an interesting topic to think about I have a few questions in relation to the differences between software and hardware when it comes to a competitive edge 
Um, I'll use an analogy here, for example, Tesla. I think it's fair to say that an organization like Ford could compete with Tesla from the hardware perspective. They could, if they invested a huge amount of capital, invest in um, the EV space more, more coherently and evidently, then we could see a real Ford competitor just from the hardware perspective um, of Tesla. My question then is, I don't think that Ford could compete against Tesla in the context of software and AI. So just to lead on from that and relate back to Palantir, why is software such a large competitive edge in comparison to hardware? Is it fair to state that, that, that software is such a large competitive moat for organizations that in the context of Palantir, it's very unlikely that an, organ that an organization like Google or Microsoft could ever, could ever really compete on a viable scale? So I'll give you an example, okay? I mean, this is not an easy question to answer in a way. I mean, it's implicit. That means something you understand, but you cannot express well. Yeah. See, Europe has tried for a very long time to create, I mean, like, if you see Apple, Apple has more valuation than the, than the total GDP of a lot of countries. Okay. Now, if you go back and ask, like, what these people are thinking of the leaders of this country, now, how the... How this company is so big? I mean, they are just selling phones. They are just selling data sometimes. So the reason is the, I mean, I have spent time with some regulators discussing, and this is always a question of innovation. Like why Silicon Valley can do it? Why we cannot do it in Europe? Why we cannot do it in Asia? Okay. So the one thing is that they don't have that culture or you can say infrastructure in a way. Okay, like for example, I mean, Europe is pretty good in engineering. I go to people, people make benchmarks based on German engineering. But German software? How many German software companies you actually know? Yeah. Okay, I mean, if at the end of the day, people who are doing engineering, they are good in mathematics, physics, so they can be good in programming also. Actually, the people who are good in programming, they eventually end up, uh, so, the, so that is the challenge. That, and the reason for that is that the culture is, that software is not the core of business. And that is what people miss. People use software development as an afterthought. And when they are looking for software development, like if you see that one of the most successful companies Germany produced in terms of software also was the rocket internet, which was based on the copying the model from the Western companies. So the innovation part of software in a way, okay, that is what, what is a challenge. I think like, for example, if I go sometime to look for companies in places they say oh we are facebook of certain country or we are facebook of this language or we are google of this or that they are always trying to copy something they're always trying to there was no that there is not that culture or thought that we are doing something that nobody else has done in the world okay and when companies do that they create market and you know how they do they, they solve real problems Okay, so somebody has to be really rebel to think like that, now that they can solve a problem of a massive scale. Why Elon Musk has to come to US to make a SpaceX? I mean, in South Africa, I mean, South Africa doesn't have a functioning rocket. So that is also the thing. You need that kind of a surrounding around you as well, the culture and a lot of companies. Like for example, if you see, I was seeing this snapshot from a couple of days back of the Ford Mackie and it has some warning with diesel and all that. <laughs> so when people are doing software as an afterthought, how will they compete? 
Yeah. How will you get the best people uh, to to come and work for you? Okay, so that is the challenge. Is if you do it as an afterthought, yeah, you're never going to. And if you do it as a core of your business, why Tesla is successful? Because Tesla made it very clear that software is a core of the business. Okay, I mean, why Apple ecosystem is so successful? Because Apple made it very clear that their hardware is incomplete without their software. They cannot just come people to hook on the hardware. The software is key for it. So that is something, and that is what pushes them also. Like they were trying to do things. They wanted to be more efficient in terms of battery because they're, and Intel was not helping them. So they eventually went into their own chip making and eventually they pushed the frontier also. So these are the kind of principles these companies hold. They just don't want to compromise over it. Okay, like on the other hand, Microsoft entered into surface line of laptop, very successful. I mean, that was something Microsoft has not done like getting a really good hardware. But when Microsoft went into the SQ1, SQ2 base, uh, like, a, like a studio, Surface Studio X and Surface X kind of a lineup, their ARM implementation was, was not perfect. And the reason for that is because people who were doing the ARM implementation, they were convinced that a ARM laptop cannot be as good as Intel laptop. They were just trying to make a good enough laptop. I mean, I have used Surface X. I mean, it looks nice. I always said that it sucks like while well using. But uh, the machine I'm using now is an M1 from Mac. Uh, I have a Surface. I have, uh, yeah, three more laptops lying on my <laughs> desk right now. Okay, I have an M1 iPad Pro. I mean, these machines are juggernaut the way they work because. When Apple implemented ARM, they said, okay, we are going to build because we want more efficiency, but we are not going to compromise on performance. In fact, we are going to do better on performance. Okay, because they take it as a, as a core of their business. That is, that's the, that's the difference. Event, I mean, I, I'll be honest, like before Apple uh, started M1 and uh, like the, the A9 and all these silicon chips, I was actually getting bearish on Apple. Because I was thinking at the end of the day, yeah, they have a software and all Mac and everything, but hardware is the same. Why should I pay more money for their hardware when I can get better? Okay. And, but you see, I mean, Apple has proved me wrong. So uh, it's culture. I mean, it's, you, you cannot replicate culture. The, the, there's a book called the innovation stack by the founder of square. Um, it's a really interesting book and it summarized some of those points you stated there. The idea of the innovation stack, meaning that, that when you create a product, often those small details add up and thereby lead to a competitive edge in some way. And he used the example of Square versus Amazon, in which Amazon tried to compete head on with Square. But despite the fact Amazon was such a big company, had such more, such a greater amount of capital at hand, Square still won because they were focused on these tiny details and they were focused on real innovation in comparison to just competing. So that's one reason as to why perhaps um, I'm really interested in Palantir versus Google um, and this kind of competition that potentially is heating up. And I mean, that's one potential argument that one could use, the idea of the innovation stack. Palantir is solely focused on this OS, whereas Google, Microsoft, they're focused on a range of different areas in which perhaps you could argue uh, would lead to inferior results. 
I have a question. So Google Google sure. focus is like, for example, I mean, all of the big tech focus is more on the infrastructure and the, some of the past incest. They are not focused on solving dedicated business problems. And that's the challenge. Their idea is that we give you tools and you have all these companies come in. Eventually you solve the business use cases. We have solved a similar case here. We have solved a similar case there. That experience can, that is very different from the, the, how Palantir approach, Palantir approach from, okay, what is the business problem you are facing? Okay. I mean, if you go to, that's where a lot of companies go and say, uh, very few companies actually come and say and claim that we are solving the complex problems. I mean, Tesla is one company they say that we are trying to solve a general AI problem and they think their competition is with Google. Okay. I mean, Elon Musk has said himself like, Palantir comes and says they're trying to solve big and complex problems. There are very small few companies because it's a very big statement to make. Yeah, definitely. Um, a question on Palantir SPACs that I was theorizing over yesterday, once again, whilst in bed, uh, just obsessing over kind of investment opportunities. I had this thesis and I have no clue um, what side of the fence I lay on. But everyone I see, I see on Twitter um, seems to be very focused upon the fluctuations of Palantir SPACs uh, within the markets. And if they go down, they, they, they scream and retweet and, um, you know, and, and get upset. If they go up, they're more plausible and happy. Um, I had a question that, that I was theorizing over, as I stated, Palantir SPACs, how important actually is it that these SPACs deliver a return within the markets that is substantial? In my opinion, and what I was theorizing over was the potential that these SPACs instead, regardless of how high they yield a return. The importance is within the value in terms of Palantir garnering competitive moats through working with these small startups and thereby getting huge competitive moats. In my view, I thought even if one of these SPACs did not work or failed at worst, Palantir from a non-monetary point of view would have huge value within just working with these SPACs. Do you think that's a, a, a fair analysis to make um, a fair theory do you think that no it is i think it's a it's a it's a perfect analysis to make and that is the best way to look at it see at the end of the day what palantir is trying to do they're trying to win an industry they're trying to sharpen their teeth on problems which nobody has faced before and they are making money from revenue and the equity i mean yeah if uh, equity market is down your investment is down but at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. I mean, the only thing matter is the company is good or bad. Okay. If the company is good, I mean, you will eventually make money. So, I mean, I'm not obsessed. I mean, I expect some of the uh, SPACs will go bust, but that's okay. Yeah, I agree. Okay. And there, is, there is no guarantee now that if you are trying to do something, all of your efforts will make. I mean, this is a... This is a quite a bookish view to, to, to look at things. Palantir will make mistakes. Palantir can also make enough mistakes that uh, that uh, made them not to be such a big company as we want them to be. Yes. These are realities. I mean, these this, these things can happen. But obsessing over SPAC's price going up and down, yeah, I mean, that's not a right way to look at. <laughs> I agree. Um, we only have six or so minutes left, and I, I won't keep you too long. On the topic of a recession. Um, the 10-2 index yield is potentially inverting, at least it's not a negative trend, which has predicted the past seven recessions. Um, so it seems to be a good indication of a recessionary period that's upcoming. When it comes to investing uh, in general, and also in the context of Palantir SPACs and, and Palantir, how will Palantir cope within a highly recessionary period? Um, is this a, a concern you have when it comes to investments? 
or do you change your, your thesis slightly? Do you change your approach to investing when it comes to a potential recession, high inflationary period, or is this not an issue? Uh, if it is a recession, let me just keep high inflation for the time inflation dealing from recession. You can have a high inflation, but you can still not enter in recession also. That could happen. Yeah. Uh, if recession happens, I mean, all stocks will suffer. Palantir is no exception. Okay. I mean, because people will be out of money. Yeah. Palantir will definitely suffer in that particular case. Um, in near future, I mean, market forces will be more strong in terms of retaining what the pricing is. But eventually, if the company keep on doing well, suddenly the company, there's a point becomes far cheaper than the rest of the market. Okay. So at the end of the day, still the performance of company in longer term matters more. Like now there were like a couple of things you can talk about, like some of the macros, for example, uh, I was reading this news. I mean, I was just having checked with Tom Nash and Tom was sharing with me about like uh, Saudi wants to go uh, with Yuan and we were just <laughs> discussing and I was sharing my views with him. But at the end of the day, the, the many people in Western democracies in the recent time, see these people talk smooth. They talk with a lot of support from media and uh, but technically they have made a lot of strategic miscalculations and all of these strategic miscalculations, they don't take accountability because they think situation is under control. But if you are making a lot of mistakes, it's a matter of time before situation goes out of control. Okay. That is what I'm more worried about because initially I was thinking that people are sincere enough. They will not make this kind of mistakes, but the kind of stupidity I have seen by the different political leaders in the recent time. I don't trust that view anymore. Okay. People have such a large ego that they can sacrifice country and economy for that. And that is what is troubling. So okay. if that happens, yes, I mean, but in that particular case, all investments will go bad. If you put it in cash, then the cash will also becomes worthless. If you go in crypto, you saw like crypto are related. Cryptos are directly related to equities. I mean, they go up with equity, they go down with, uh, I mean, with equity. There is no, they are not hedge against equity. Yeah. Okay. So uh, if, if uh, the countries go bad, I think we have more worries than investment. I'll be honest. Okay. Yeah. I, I think that's a fair analysis to make. My final question, because we're approaching the hour mark, um, Joe Biden recently stated that inflation was not due to uh, the money printing but he stated that it was due to the, the crisis in, in Russia uh, and Ukraine. What was your analysis of that situation? Um, is that a fair comment to make? And perhaps where do you see inflation going within the, the next few months? There was a very weak statement. I mean, somebody that senior yeah. and that experienced uh, making a statement like this. Inflation was high even before the Russia-Ukraine crisis started. Okay, so... Uh, I think it is fair to say that the recent management of like recent administration in, in, in us has lost a lot of respect from people like me. I mean, I, I was among the people who was really rooting for them to come in. Uh, it's a lie when they say like something like that. Okay. I mean, we have seen how they have treated with Tesla. 
there are a lot of things. I mean, they are this whole oil crisis is is not being handled well. Uh, they were not prepared to take Ukraine in in NATO or European Union. Yet they made a statement. Yet they bluffed and faked. Okay, yeah, we can do this. We can do that. When things went out of control, they say, "Oh, yeah, this is not NATO's war." Uh, yeah, I think there has been a lot of strategic miscalculations, and it happened at a very rampant pace consistently. So that has got me thinking about the establishments in different parties and the quality of it. Okay, and I've started I've started looking into the leaders who were in the fringes because uh, they got attacked by their own parties. And I started seeing a pattern here is that uh, anyone says anything, it's very easy to say that oh he this guy is committing treason. It's like there is no consequences nowadays. Oh he's fascist, he's Nazi. I mean it's like I mean this uh, yeah it's like there is no there is no scope of discussion with anyone anymore. So putting it all together, uh, the inflation is there because of money printing. Okay, the inflation is there because the way different countries handle their COVID crisis. Okay, the supply chain bottlenecks and all that. The inflation is there, especially this oil rise and supply, because these people have made strategic miscalculations and mistakes in foreign policy. Okay, if Putin is a difficult leader or a bad leader, you still need to manage. No? I mean, this is how the world is, the diplomatic world is. Now you manage tough leaders. It's characteristic, whatever you work it out. You just don't raise your hands. Now you say, okay, he gets all the blame. I mean, you get also, you also have to share the blame you have. No? I mean, the, the vice president goes to Poland and in a statement, which I interpret as she said, like, Ukraine is a part of NATO. I mean, I was like, what? <laughs> I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's sad because I always, I mean, I'm, I'm nowadays it's very difficult to call yourself liberal also because if you are liberal in today's definition, then that is very different. So I'm not liberal in that terms, but I consider myself liberal and progressive, not in terms of woke, but I mean, the way I think of it. Uh, and I don't relate with these guys and I don't relate with conservatives and I don't relate with far right. So yeah, yeah I mean, I don't like what Biden administration has done and it's just that I agree I think there's so much knowledge there we're approaching the hour mark so I must let, let you go I know it's getting late over there thank you so much for for taking this podcast um it's been a great pleasure and I think uh, no, man, it's my it's my pleasure pleasure to connect with you man yeah thank you so much and I no, hope everything everyone... was fine I hope I don't come across sleepy because it no. got late but uh, I need to finish so when I was really surprised when I mean I I was I mean, I just started this project. I was having some meeting. I was just uh, getting my notes done and I missed uh, the, yeah, the notice somehow. So, <laughs> don't worry. Don't worry. It's all. I understand. Thank you so much for coming. Um, I hope to speak to you soon. And thank you for spending your time. I know it's getting late. So thank you so much.